Welcome to Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager, your host. For the next half hour, hopefully we'll talk about things calmly in a way that would uh, actually allow you to go to sleep if you'd like. I'm Dave Wager coming to you from the studios here at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute, which also operates Northwoods Retreat, Foster Family Connect, and Relate365.com. We invite you to check any of those ministries out to see if we can serve you. The fun part of life is putting yourself in a position where you can serve. God made us to serve. He didn't make us to be served. And if you spend your whole life trying to get people to serve you, I think you turn into a miserable old person. Because it never really works. Because there's no satisfaction in being served. Oh, temporarily there is. For some reason you might think that you're powerful or something. But God didn't mean us to be served. He meant us to serve. When he told us to love him, it's to serve him. When he told us to love one another, it's to serve one another. And there is no possible way for you to be fulfilled in this life unless we live according to the way that we were meant to be. In the last program that we talked about, we talked about shalom, the word peace, living in the context of the way it's meant to be. And we were meant to love one another. But there's no possible way that you and I can love unless we understand what being loved is like. When I grasp mercy, I can begin to grasp peace. When I see what God did on my behalf while I was still a sinner, the fact that God doesn't need me for anything but wants me, when I grasp mercy, I can begin to grasp peace. And when I grasp peace, I can begin to grasp what love is. So if you're having trouble understanding what it is to love others or to love God, perhaps you've never understood mercy, and perhaps you've never understood mercy because you've never seen how depraved you actually are. Those who understand their own depravity, they understand mercy. Talking to young people when they don't have a great appreciation for mercy, it's because they've never actually seen their own depravity. They haven't seen what God sees in their life. They don't realize what it means that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was one time when the Apostle Paul was still Saul. He was actually persecuting those who were Christians. He thought he was a pretty good guy. Till one day on the road to Damascus, he was struck down by the Lord. And eventually he realized his sinful ways. And if you read the Apostle Paul, you read a lot about mercy and grace. He understood his depraved condition. He understood what mercy was about. I think those who have grown up in the church, those who particularly have a personality like mine where I was compliant as a child, we have trouble grasping mercy and grace because we're not mass murderers. We haven't done anything that's totally evil. We, 
We actually listen to our parents. We listen to the government. We drive the speed limit. We don't understand what depravity really is. And until we do, until I get to the point in my life where I understand how depraved I am, I can never be awed by mercy. So if you tonight are listening and you've never been awed by God's mercy, I don't think you need to listen to this anymore. I think you need to read the scriptures and you need to look at yourself and understand the depraved condition you actually have been in and are in and what God actually offers you. Now you'd be amazed at his mercy. And his grace becomes all that more meaningful as well because it's not just not getting what you deserve, it's getting far more than you deserve. When you grasp mercy, you begin to grasp peace. When you grasp the idea of peace, you begin to grasp the idea of love. We have to keep asking ourselves how it's meant to be and, and adjust our lives into that context. And you and I were meant to be in a relationship with God. So that's the foundational brick to everything. If I am not in a foundational relationship with God, if that isn't the first thing that happens in my life, then I'm not prepared for everything else in life. It's kind of like trying to build a building with no foundation. Let's just put a wall over there and the roof and let's put the bathrooms there, whatever it might be within the building. But there's nothing to hold it up. We get so consumed sometimes with the building, the parts you could see, that we forget the parts you can't see and the importance of them. In Luke chapter 12, starting with verse 13 to 21, there's a story that Jesus tells of the rich fool. I know I've mentioned it before on nighttime. But nighttime's gone for several years. I'm sure I'm going to talk about Bible stories more than once. Let me read this passage to you and then talk a little bit about it. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care lest you be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought of to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All men think all men mortal but themselves. 
And the danger which haunts us through life of all things is most unreal to us, according to the biblical illustrator. Let me read that again. All men think all men mortal but themselves. And the danger which haunts us through life is of all things most unreal to us. Here the rich man is totally consumed with keeping things for himself, making sure that he's comfortable, that he can relax and eat and drink and be merry. He doesn't realize that he's not going to have a day to do that, that he spent his entire life putting these things away so that he could enjoy a moment in time to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But he's not going to because his life will end. You and I know that life ends. I've never spoken to anyone who doesn't know that. However, I've never spoken to anyone that says my life could end today and really mean it and really lives that way. When you think about it, our death is very certain, and our life is not. As I talk to you, I'm 100% certain that I will die. I'm not 100% certain that I will live tomorrow. So if I'm actually somebody who's wise, how am I preparing for tomorrow? That's a good question. God called this rich guy a fool. He doesn't call that many people foolish in the Bible, but this guy he did. And that's most troubling for me. The reason it's troubling is because it seems to be describing the American dream. I need to work. I need to put money away so that I don't have to answer to anybody. I can eat and drink and be merry. That's all I need to do the rest of my life. I'm not sure that's what God created us to do. Well, don't get me wrong. I think he wants us to enjoy the fruit from the promised land. He's the one that's the great provider of good things, and he wants his people to enjoy good things, good homes, good good lives. He, he wants us to enjoy heat in the winter and and wants us to enjoy sunsets and sunrises and lakes and streams and a good trout dinner because... He made the trout for us. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about the mind frame of being totally self-focused with our resources. You can't be at shalom if your resources are really about you first. When you think about it, why did God give us resources in the first place? Did he give us resources because he wanted us to be self-centered and self-focused? Of course not. Did he give us resources so that we could indulge ourselves and give to people to make us be honored more because of our giving to him? No. What if all of the resources that he's given to us He's entrusted to us. What if that's the case? How would we take care of resources that are entrusted rather than resources that are ours? 
Now, I know that he didn't give me my resources so I could just be self-indulgent. But I also know that he wants me to live in a promised land where I get to enjoy the fruit of the land, whatever that might mean in different places, in different times. I also know that resources in abundance or resources that are few are all from the hand of God and they're all a gift and those circumstances should not affect my peace at all. I think, too, in this parable of the rich fool that we're learning that God didn't make it so that you and I get to the point in life where we do nothing. I don't think it's healthy to do nothing. I think we were made to work. Oh, I'm not saying we need to get paid the same the rest of our life, but I think we were made to do something in life. We weren't made to just sit and do nothing. As I get older, I think more and more about what's next. Of course, I don't know what's next. I do know that your body doesn't get stronger in this earth, that I probably will not be training for an Olympics in the future. I really don't know what to prepare for as far as the physical side of earth. I know for now that I need to get up every day and work and ask God what he wants me to do with this time he's given to me. I know that this is his time and not mine. That the time that he gives me as a resource shouldn't be all about me. It should be spent representing my king. I'm an ambassador. I'm a servant. And a servant and an ambassador is not about themselves, but about the king. The resources that I have, they're really God's. The resources are not about me. They're not about self-indulgent. They're not about being self-centered. They're really about God, his faithfulness. What am I to do with my resources? Oh, I understand it could be that I'm going to live to be 120 years old and I'm going to need those resources to be in an assisted living facility for about 20 years. Or it could be that I'll leave this earth rapidly like my father, my earthly father. And I won't need a dime because I will have worked and been paid until the day I leave. We don't know what the answer is for that. I do know that I won't be here forever. I do know that the resources God has entrusted me with He's entrusted me with. They're not mine. The time that he's given me, he's entrusted me with. This deep voice that you're listening to, he's entrusted me with. These are things that I need to use while I'm alive to honor and glorify him. And one day I won't be here anymore. As biblical illustrator said, all men think all men mortal but themselves. And the danger which haunts us through life of all things is most unreal to us. If 
you're setting your life up so that tomorrow you can be okay, I just want to warn you that you might not have tomorrow. And you and I need to adjust our lives according to the realities of life. There was a story that I read in the biblical illustrator that said, years ago among the Swiss mountains, there was a village over which an avalanche had hung threateningly for half a century. It was only a question of time, sooner or later, it must come down and bury all beneath. Travelers warned the inhabitants of that village, but apathy only grew stronger with familiarity. Gray-headed men, who had played as boys underneath the awful crags, now gathered their harvest contentedly with scarcely a glance at the threatening danger. So all went on until one calm summer day, when, with scarcely a warning sound, down came the overwhelming mass bringing destruction and death upon all who were beneath. I've often thought about that in different places of the world. I, I know that there are places that are known for some natural disasters and people like to live there. But we know that the natural disaster takes place. Do we live there without making provision for that? If I live in a place that will most likely get hit by a hurricane, shouldn't I prepare for that? Or maybe not live there or be okay when it does hit because I knew it was going to come? I know in our area of the world we don't have hurricanes. We really don't have flooding. But we get tornadoes. And we've been hit with a few here at Silver Birch Ranch, and we got hit with a derecho that just about wiped everything out. We know that. It can happen, and it does. Now, most likely, people could live their whole life without ever seeing one of those. Yet on these grounds, we've seen several. We know that tornadoes come. We know that they can be devastating. So we need to have shelters in place, and we need to have plans in place for when they come. We also know that in an area like ours, you can have a forest fire, so we need to have plans in place. The trouble is, there's never been a forest fire in my life. Not in this area. So I have to be honest with you, I'm kind of lax about preparing for it, personally. Corporately, we have rules, and we have to prepare for things. But when it doesn't happen day after day after day, I'm in my late 60s. I've gotten up every day for the last 60-plus years. The idea that I might not be here tomorrow gets more and more remote from me. And yet, as I get older, I'm thinking about it more, and it becomes more and more real to me. Kind of a oxymoron or something. The rich man in this passage was totally consumed with himself. Anyone that is totally consumed with themselves is going to be a miserable person. And when they die, they will die unprepared for the future. 
You contrast the rich man's life with other rich people like Abraham and David and Solomon and Job. And you see a different display of what happens. Take Job, for instance. Job 1, 1 to 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Right away in verse 1, we get a different contrast between him and the rich fool. Verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. His sons used to go and hold feasts in the house of each other on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their heart. Thus Job did continually. Job was a guy whose family was put together. His kids would get together, but they wouldn't exclude the daughters. It's interesting how it says their sons would hold feasts and they'd trade off holding feasts, and they would invite their sisters, their three sisters. That was very important to put in there. Not only that, after these get-togethers, Job was concerned for his children, and he would sacrifice on behalf of them. It shows a family that cared deeply about each other, a family that cared deeply about God and who he was and what he gave. Job was not a poor man. Neither was the rich fool. But if you read the book of Job, you see how that ends. It ends differently. He does end in a very interesting way, and you can read that book. But I'll stay in the beginning of the book. Job one twenty to 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Why did he do that? Because before... This particular moment, Satan came to God and began to accuse Job. Satan is an accuser. He's a liar. God had to ask him if he's considered Job. And what we learn about Satan during that moment is that he's roaming the earth looking for people to accuse before God. He didn't use Job because Job was doing things right. But God asked him about Job and And Job gave him reason to point him out. I wonder if I give God reason to point me out. I wonder if you do. Anyway, Satan began right away the normal attack mode. He told God in front of all the angelic hosts, of course, Job fears you. Look at all the stuff you give him. He was basically saying, Job loves you because you give him stuff. You take away stuff, Job won't love you anymore. You realize that love is not tied to stuff. True love has nothing to do with whether you have money or a lack of it. It has nothing to do with how rich you are, how poor you are. What Satan was counting on it 
was that Job was confused on what love was all about. And God pretty much said, take his stuff. And one day, Job had a very bad day. All of his children were killed. All of his possessions were taken. He was left with no family, just his wife. No income, no possessions. Job won 20 to 22. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on his ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In all of this, Job did what was right. See, it wasn't the money. It wasn't a lack of money. It wasn't healthy family. It wasn't the lack of healthy family. It wasn't status in the community. It wasn't a lack of status in the community. God understood where Job was at, and Job, more importantly, understood what love was about. He didn't blame God for this. If you know how the book of Job goes, he's got some friends that come that really don't understand God. They're, they're good friends. They want to help Job, but they think that God's love is tied to performance. God's love is not tied to performance. God loves. He loves you no matter what condition you're in right now. He loves you and wants you to come to him. And as the war goes on, he's going to want Satan to get into each of our lives and confuse what's important and confuse where we get our peace from. His friends didn't understand that. He was getting advice from people who didn't know God, which is a very dangerous thing, but he held his own. There did come a time where he shrugged his shoulders, I think, and pretty much said, I can't think of anything I did wrong, but God is God and he'll do what he wants to do. He kind of indicated that God might just be picking on him. That wasn't the case. And God came to him for several chapters and said, since you seem to know what's going on, answer me. And Job didn't know what was going on. He just knew he was suffering. You do know that there are times in life where the only answer you can come up with is the fact that you know God and you love God. In Job 42, finally Job answered the Lord after three chapters of the Lord asking him questions. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I have not understood, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and you make known to me. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What happened is that Job came and said, I, I began to think in terms that I shouldn't. And he confessed that to God. Remember the shalom we've been talking about? It comes from understanding our depravity, our own sinful condition and coming to God. And when we come to God with that, the peace that passes understanding is clear. You can read the rest of the book of Job. 
you find out that after Job went through this, that God restored him double what he had. It really wasn't about the money or the lack of money or the health or the lack of health. It was really about where you find your peace from. It wasn't from money. It wasn't from family. It wasn't from status. It wasn't from health. The peace comes from doing what God has you to do today. Living in God's mercy, being awed by his mercy, being awed by his grace. And as I am awed by his mercy and his grace, I have peace that passes understanding. And I also have love for God and a love for those around me. It's important that I put life into the right perspective. Well, one day you and I won't be on this earth anymore. Perhaps this recording will still be around somewhere, but I might be long gone. And I have recordings of people all over the place that aren't around anymore and they're just rotting away. But the Word of God that lasts forever. Stay in the Word of God. Know what He says. Respond to Him. Shalom, my friend. Shalom. Thank you.